Good morning. If you would turn to Philippians 2, we're going to get through hopefully the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 1 today. I have harassed Barry so much about how long he takes in some of his classes that eventually I'm going to have to repent given that I think we've, we've covered about eight verses a week, which is slower than his pace in Luke. And, you know, it's, it's not good to, to both harass someone and then be guilty of the same thing. So I have to go faster this week. Um, all right, so we're in Philippians 2. Our goal is to start in verse 19, and we'll go hopefully 19 through the first half of chapter 3. So to start, I'm going to read uh, just uh, starting in 2.19 uh, through the end of the chapter, and then we'll have uh, some discussion about what's going on there. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served, me, served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. All right, take just a minute or two and jot down some notes um, about this, and then we'll discuss. All right, what did y'all notice in this section? Chip? Well, you just got to talking about how to be self-sacrificing, how to teach you self-sacrificing, starting the chapter off by saying, you want to support yourself. So the first thing he says that I notice is he points out that Timothy's worthiness yeah, so Timothy is emulating the example of Christ that we had just a moment ago uh, at the beginning of the chapter. I, in my notes, I had that too, because the way we talked about the first half of chapter 2, I, I kind of structured that conversation as instruction to, from Paul to the church, an example in Christ, and the results. If you don't limit yourself with that, I think you could also say that Paul is now providing two more examples of how we can be self-sacrificing. And he gives those examples in Timothy and in Epaphroditus. So we get more, a more fulsome example of not just how did Christ do this, but then what does it look like when we do it, um, which I think is, 
is really helpful for people because sometimes when we use Christ as the example for every way that we should emulate Christ, we kind of end up in this situation where we feel like, well, yeah, well, Christ is perfect. So yes, I should be like him, but perfection is difficult to attain. So when we have examples of men who followed that same example, it can help us have hope that we can emulate it, but then also gives us examples of what we can do in that as well. Barry? This makes, I think, begins to start to suggest to us one of the weaknesses of the Philippian Christians. Uh, he's going to follow this with Paul, giving himself as an example as well. He's kind of showing this. When you know Philippi is a little wrong and the um, ease in some ways in which they would have uh, come into been a part of Rome and Roman citizenship and things, that this sacrifice may be something that uh, is needed by them in order to build the culture. Yeah, so in case you didn't hear all of Barry's comment, he's, what he said is when you see that Paul's given Christ's example, then Timothy's example, then Epaphroditus' example, and then he gives an example himself, it, it's reasonable to infer that Paul is giving all these examples because the Philippian Christians are lacking something in their own service and work as Christians. Otherwise, we might not have as many examples. And I think, I think Barry, verse 30 of chapter 2 may kind of seal the deal on that idea. Um, in the ESV, it reads, For he, that's Epaphroditus, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking, to his, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. And so Paul both commends Epaphroditus, but there's a little bit of an edge there that, that the Philippian church as a whole had not completed their, their work or their service, and Epaphroditus does that. Then Barry said, add 315. And then let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So Paul's kind of bookending uh, this section by talking about the faith, which is shown through service that they needed to have. Great. What else do you notice in this section? Yes, so um, we started in chapter 2 when we had those sections about looking out for the interests of others uh, and not only yours. And so here he says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So one thing that's interesting there is Paul is making this comment about whom? In a way, he's making a comment about kind of two people or two groups. One is Timothy. He's commending Timothy because he um, looks after the interests of Christ Jesus. But then who is this other comment about? Verse 21, they all seek their own interests. Who is all? Y'all have any thoughts, theories? 
Alan? It just seems like it's other preachers of the gospel. This seems that way. Okay, so you could say Paul's referring to the, the other teachers of Christendom generally. That's, that's one way you could think about it. I think that makes sense, potentially. Yeah, so, so Crystal points out that in verse 20, it may kind of, kind of go against Alan's theory here, which is it's everyone here. Here is in Rome, based on this. So um, potentially these are, these are people with Paul. But he's acknowledged that they may not seek Christ as fully as Timothy does, or maybe as Paul does. Which is interesting when you, comp- when you think about chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 15, do you remember the, the group of people that Paul talked about in one fifteen? And if you don't, you can go look. So what's happening in 1 verse 15? Unless I gave you the wrong verse and then I'm really messed up. Yeah, so in one fifteen, Paul specifically talks about people that are teaching and preaching with bad motives. I think in that, I always envisioned those were people spread throughout the kingdom, or the empire potentially, who were doing that. I think two, chapter 2 and 20, where we are, may actually give the indication that some of those people are with Paul in Rome. That, 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 those, those imperfect um, men that are seeking to harm him are actually with him. And so, I, there's a couple reasons that could be. Where did you say, Crystal? Um, so you Yeah, yeah, so their genuineness in their service and love was tested potentially when Paul said, all right, who's going to go to Philippi to check on the Philippians? And everybody's like, mm, I'm just going to stay in Rome. I'm not going not to get on a, a horse or a camel or a donkey or walk or get on a boat. I'm not going to do any of that. I'll just stay here where it's nice in Rome. Um, but then he commends Timothy. And what are all the ways that he commends Timothy? to them. Has no one like him. Say again? He has no one like him. So Paul has no one like him and in what regard? How does he refer to Timothy in that note? Concerned about others. Concerned about others, but when he's, he's got no one else who's concerned like uh, about the Philippians as Timothy is, all right, how else does he refer to him? Joshua? Son to father. As a son to a father, yeah. And what a great commendation for Timothy that here Paul is referring to him as a son. What else? Any, any other ways that Paul refers to Timothy? Alright, so uh, he uses the words with me. 
uh, which brings you back to chapter 1 and chapter 4, both talk about partnership in the gospel, which Timothy is showing that he is a partner with Paul in the gospel. But I think it's interesting in verse 22 when he says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. What does proof mean? If you can say something is proven, what does that mean? It was tested. I've used this example before here. The, the, the root of the concept of bulletproof came from the Tower of London as firearms began to become a thing. They started testing armor with a gun. They would shoot it at it at the chest and there would be a dent created, ideally. And if a dent was created in that armor, that meant that the, the bullet didn't go through. And so the armor was declared to be bulletproof so that when you gave that armor to someone, they could have confidence to go into battle. They could say, see, this armor is bulletproof. It has a proof mark in it, a testing mark in it. And, and I like that example because it's very real. Like we understand the concept of being bulletproof. We understand the concept of I'd like to know that it's bulletproof. I'm going to use it for that. Um, well, when here when it says Timothy's proven worth, that means that in at least one way and maybe many ways, um, Timothy has proven to them that he loves the Philippians. That has been proven. And also that he has proven worth as a son to Paul. All right. How can, what about this can we emulate or do we need to emulate? Chip? And so Chip's referencing us back to Romans 5, which hopefully if we get down to 3 verse 10, Paul also gives a reference in a way back to Romans 5 when he talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ to become like him in his death. That idea of proven character, part of that is we, are, we have proven character when we suffer with Christ. That is part of the proof that we gain uh, that is beneficial through suffering. All right. In this section, we kind of have three different people, Paul, Epaphroditus, and Timothy. You could say there's a fourth and that the Philippians are a, a, a group here. But what can we emulate from those three men? What are characteristics that we should take on as exemplified here? All right, so we can be genuinely concerned for others' welfare, and what does that look like here? Going so far beyond your resources that you exhaust your resources in order to make sure someone else is provided. All right, that's a great example, Joshua. So you're going beyond your own resources potentially taking on the resources of others like Epaphroditus did. Likely they funded his way to, to go take care of Paul. Um, and here I think also the genuine concern, Crystal kind of mentioned this a little bit, that 
There were potentially lots of people concerned, man, I really think about those Philippian Christians a lot. I bet it's really rough there in Philippi. That's concern. (laughs) Genuine concern is that when Paul said, who's going to raise their hand and go to Philippi, only Timothy raised his hand to go. The difference between concern and genuine concern is action. And so as brethren, when we have concern for people here, or we have concern for people outside our group, the difference between concern and genuine concern is action. There's some jokes about this. Uh, If you're on the internet and you pay attention to like Instagram, um, this idea of hashtag, people have done this hashtag thoughts and prayers, which in the beginning it was supposed to be like genuine. I see this thing, it tugs at my heartstrings. I said, well, I'm going to send thoughts and prayers. So you do hashtag thoughts and prayers. But that's turned into a bit of a joke, which some people call a meme. That is, someone shares something concerning, like, oh, hashtag thoughts and prayers, sending that your way. And then you, you turn the other way and you don't actually show genuineness in your concern. You just type something. And that was, that's as far as you could go uh, to be bothered. So we can have genuine concern. How else can we emulate Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus? Well, Paul was in prison, so he went to that lane to be in prison for Christ. Okay, so, so Paul went to the great lengths in his service. that He was willing to sacrifice. He's in prison. I think in my notes what I wrote about being in prison wasn't just that he was in prison, but what is Paul doing while he's in prison? He's preaching. What's he doing for the Philippians? He's encouraging them how? He's teaching them through letters. And we can say letters plural because chapter 3 is going to start with the idea that he write, this is him writing to them again. So he's written to them before. And he says he's writing to them again about the same things. So he's written to them before about these same issues. And he's still doing that. So he didn't allow prison to keep him from both teaching those around him, but also reaching out to those that he'd taught before uh, via letter and messenger. Great. Barry? We would probably be dressed to uh, say, well, I'm going to go through this work, and we're going, whoa, 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 we're really risking your life to do that. We probably would go, well, okay, I, yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Yeah, we live in a, a society that generally does not take on risk very often. Um, Dan and Sonia Kane, who moved to Sierra Leone that some of us know, uh, he has a video uh, channel on YouTube. There's one video in there that talks about risk, actually two, (coughs) and how he and Sonia considered that. um, And um, it's so interesting how they approach the risks of going to a very third world country especially related to medical facilities. And they face sickness. Dan's been in the hospital from having malaria and dengue fever at the same time. All kinds of things. But they talked about the fact that taking on risk for the Lord is something that is supported in the Bible. And now they're pregnant, and actually they're headed back if they're not already back um, because Sonia's facing some complications with their, their third pregnancy. But they took on great risk. Um, and didn't just insulate themselves from it and stay somewhere comfortable and easy uh, for their work. The, the other thing, uh, we talked about this a little bit, but I want to hammer home that for us, Paul gives this example of Timothy as a son and a father. So that, 
That takes two. That's a relationship that takes two. Paul's got to work as the father. Timothy has to accept him as a son in doing that work together. Um, that sort of idea is something that we can heavily invest in and work with as a group. Meaning, folks in here that be, could be considered fathers of that age, women in here that could be considered mothers of that age, who have you taken on as children in this group, as sons and daughters, to help learn and emulate and become as mentors like a son and a father or a mother and a daughter. That relationship that Paul talks about achieved great good in the work and service of the kingdom because Paul was pouring into Timothy as a father does a son related to service and the love of the gospel. We have the exact same opportunities. Don't think about that as, well, Paul was in some special circumstance and Timothy was in some special circumstance that just made that happen. They formed a relationship and they invested in one another and then Paul was able to say he had no one else with proven worth like Timothy to him. We can take that on in others um, and help them to grow. That's, that's part of um, what I think is the beauty of mentorship and leadership is the ability to pour into others and share your life with them and help them grow. And then they can do that. And it's a cycle that can change uh, the lives of people by sharing love with them. All right, anything else about this section before we go on to chapter 3? Barry? Okay, so, so Epaphroditus is sick nearly to death, and Paul doesn't miraculously heal him. You've made us take note of that, so now tell us why that matters. Well, it just illustrates that the, the signs and miracles that were done in those days weren't for just personal interest. They were, they were signs, and uh, it didn't mean that no Christian could ever get sick and die or something like that. But somehow, we, every, every, you are around somebody who could do miracles, that's automatically meant you weren't going to get sick. If you did, you would be healed. Yes, so, all right, the, the idea here is taking note of that is a great example of, of explaining that miracles had a confirming purpose. And there was no confirming purpose here because um, it seems that most of those around Paul already believe in Christ. I mean, to the fact that we know that the guards and parts of uh, the households of Caesar have taken on Christ. There, there's no need for confirmation. Epaphroditus certainly doesn't need it. Timothy doesn't need it. And no, no miraculous work is done. Um, and the, the lack thereof indicates that there were times when healing was possible and necessary, but frequently not, um, when no confirmation was needed. All right, let's go on to chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever, I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, take a minute or two, make some notes, and then we'll, we'll discuss this a little bit. All right, what's the situation facing the Philippians here? Joshua? It seems like the Jews are pushing their own agenda again. Okay. So Paul's having to tell them, no, 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 you don't have to. It's, it's okay. All right. Joshua said it seems like the Jews are pushing their agenda again. I agree with you like 50%. Anybody have any thoughts about the 50% more that we need to understand here? Chip? Uh, their citizenship of the Romans also was something that they were having to deal with. They were privileged. Okay. And they tolerated the certain things. And I, thought, I think they, in this section, all deals with um, where your tribe is. Okay. Maybe not necessarily in where it might be. All right. So, so they are most likely Roman citizens, and Paul references. Some ideas of where their pride may be. Let's go back a little bit to Joshua's comment. He referred to these people as Jews that were pushing their agenda. I think they were Jews, but the past tense here is very important. Have a thought? All right. So there are other passages in Scripture that we could use to understand this more. So, for example, if you looked at Acts 15... Or Galatians chapter 2. What issues are facing the Christians in Acts 15 and Galatians 2? What did you say, Wayne? The, the doctrine that circumcision was still required. Yeah, the doctrine that circumcision was still required. So the reason I, take, I took a little bit of issue with, with Joshua's comment is because he, he limited it to Jews. But in Acts 15, if you remember, who, who is saying who needs to be circumcised? Speak louder, Wayne. Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians are saying what? That circumcision is still required to be Christian. Yeah, so Jewish Christians were essentially saying to Gentile Christians, you must be circumcised in order to have 
the hope of salvation. Galatians 2, this issue comes up. How does the issue come up in Galatians? Anybody remember? It's that where Peter withdrew from the Gentiles when the Jewish circumcision came. Yes, so Paul said that men of the circumcision had come and they spoke to Peter and as a result Peter withdrew from the Gentile Christians and Paul opposed him to his face, opposed Peter to his face and essentially um, condemned him or however you want to say that he called him out on the, the problem with that and Peter repented of that sin. Here we again see that Paul references that look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision. The issue here is that Jewish Christians are telling all these Gentile Christians in Philippi, well you need to be circumcised. And so Paul starts a discussion of that here and he says we are the circumcision. So by the way that means we could describe ourselves as being of the circumcision. Any thoughts on what that means? Turn to Genesis 17. Alright, so in Genesis 17, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on. Abraham's given the covenant. Uh, there's discussion of circumcision. Isaac's birth is promised. This is, if I remember right, where Sarah laughs because, because Abraham is so old. And then ultimately, after the, the uh, promise of Isaac, then um, Abraham and all of his men that are in his group are circumcised. Um, not only Abraham, those that are with him, and then any foreigners that were among them also. So they weren't kind of of Abraham's tribe. Um, in verse 17, uh, 17, if you look at verse 12, this is where, well, let's start in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What was the purpose of the circumcision? To be a sign of the covenant. Alright, so when Paul starts telling the Philippian Christians that they are of the circumcision, but they haven't been circumcised, what is he telling them? Wayne, you have a thought? what Christ has done for them in the way they act, behave, the way they live. I, I, I agree, 
But I, I, I think like that is, that's kind of taking us to an application idea. Paul says, well first, in Genesis we're told that circumcision was a sign that you're part of the covenant. And now they are called the circumcision. What is the covenant that we're talking about? Salvation and the promise of God. So when you think about all the promises made to Abraham, Abraham thought those promises and, and the Israelites thought those promises were about Abraham and Israel, right? And they ignored the parts of the covenant that were, for example, I will make you a father of nations, that the world will be blessed by your offspring. They focused on the fact that they were the offspring, right? So they thought that the circumcision is what confirmed that they were part of God, as opposed to a circumcision confirming that they were part of, they were a sign of the covenant. So this is a, a bit of a difficult idea, right? I think if you go to Romans 9, we can understand this a little bit more. Romans 9, 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Hmm. And not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. In Romans, Paul is clarifying that being an offspring of Abraham is not about physical genealogy. It is about those who take part in the promise. Those who take part in the promise, the hope of salvation through Christ, who are part of Abraham's lineage. And so here, when Paul calls them the circumcision, this is bringing us full circle because he's saying the Gentile Christians are an example of the covenant of God. Just like circumcision was an example with the Israelites that they were part of the covenant. Any questions that I can probably not answer well? Yes, great. I don't have a question. Great, that's even better. Okay. It says that is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Yes, it's not the children of physical descent, but the children of the promise. And sometimes we can, I think the idea of flesh, we, we, we kind of broaden that out, and it's this little nebulous concept out there. This is flesh. This is pretty specific. Yes, yeah, yeah. This is flesh, is in flesh and blood. All right, so, Alan, go ahead. And it also goes back to the Israelites, their descendants of Israel. They were circumcised, but they weren't part of the Israelites. Yeah, so that goes back to that Romans 9 also. There were those who were circumcised, and for them it was just a surgery. It wasn't a sign of the covenant. It was just 
surgery that they had done as, as young boys. Danny, were you going to say something? No, I think this is uh, dealt with several times in Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse 25 through 29 talks about this. Now it's a circumcision of the heart. Yes. The value of circumcision is not physical but spiritual in the matter that if you, even if you're circumcised but you don't keep the law, that is the law of Christ. It's a no value. Yes. And so I think it's really important here. Paul gives all these examples. He says, we are the circumcision or you are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So this is the, this is kind of giving a little bit to the idea that, um, that Belinda was talking about, put no confidence in the flesh. You can read that as physical descent, but then Paul gives a whole bunch of other examples about confidence in the flesh you could have. He talks about his lineage. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's of specific tribes that had stayed true um, to, to Israel and the law. He's a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. Um, and then he says, as to righteousness under the law, he's blameless. He gives all these examples that if you don't just think about even physical um, descent, which he talks about that also, but there are these other ways that he had lived Perfectly, essentially. He says he's blameless according to the law. I think that's kind of interesting to consider because he certainly wasn't actually blameless because as a persecutor of the church, he killed a bunch of Christians. Like that is clearly not what the law told him to do. But he, he interpreted himself as, well, I was blameless because I was doing essentially what I thought was right according to the law. So even though he says he's blameless, I don't actually think that's what it means. Um, then whatever I had gained, I counted as loss. And then and a little bit later, he refers to everything he had as, in ESV it says rubbish. Um, Net Bible, I think, says a dung or dung heap. Um, anybody else have anything else there besides rubbish or dung? Worthless maybe in some, some versions? Essentially, it's, it's nothing you would want. <laughs> so all these physical things I had, I gave them up completely for Christ. And he tells us a little bit more at the end of this section. What did he specifically give up all of those things for? What did he want to gain? What did you say, Wayne? What, but the hope of eternity, I agree, but that's not exactly what he says. He uses different words than that. What words do you see in 10 and 11? Chip, what's it say? All right, so I agree with Wayne when he said he wants to attain the hope of heaven, but there's a little bit more fidelity uh, here than, than just the hope of heaven. He wants to know Christ, know the power of his resurrection, and share in his sufferings, is the ESV. And all of those things becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what do you guys think it means when he says becoming like him in his death? 
I, I think, I'll give you a hint, I think you should attach becoming like him in his death and attaining the power of the resurrection. I think those two concepts go hand in hand. So what is Paul wanting? Any thoughts? All right, we die so others can live. That's specifically talking about the gospel. Yeah, you're giving up your life so that others can live. I actually think it's a little different than that. I don't think he's. I don't think that's what he's referencing. Wayne, I don't often disagree with you. Think about the example you gave of the marks of testing. Okay. Because he is saying. I want to bear the marks as Jesus did. When you said that, I thought about his hands. Yeah. I thought about his feet. I thought about his side. And I think about Paul here trying to bear up under whatever comes because Jesus was faithful. And he is striving just to be faithful. Okay. So he's striving to be faithful. And, and I think... When I said I disagree with Barry, I agree with what he said, but I have a little bit different take on what this means. Can Paul go to heaven as he is? All right, Wayne shook his head, said no. I think other people are kind of shaking their heads a little bit. Why can't Paul go to heaven as he is? He's a fleshly being. His body cannot go to heaven. In order to be able to go to heaven, what does he need? He needs a different body. And the way he gets that body is dying and the resurrection from the dead. So when he says, I want to become like him in his death, share the sufferings, and know the power of the resurrection, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's goal in all of this is so that he can have a body that can go to heaven. Otherwise, he won't be able to attain heaven because he hasn't attained the resurrection and the new body that he needs. Um, before we, we end, a, a little bit of discussion, I hope, on Paul gives all these examples about himself and the things that he has given up. Um, Chip mentioned that maybe about the rights that they had as Philippians that they need to give up as citizens of Rome. Paul actually doesn't talk about it as citizens of Rome. Paul's talking about it essentially as a, a Jewish citizen or a Jewish man. I th well, we're out of time. Those were really close together. Um, I think it's important for us to consider what are the things that we bear like Paul did that we need to give up. He mentioned all these spiritual concepts that he grew up as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He grew up, he was circumcised on the eighth day. According to the law, he was blameless. There's a lot about who we are and how we talk to others about our faith that can carry these same ideas. I am Adam Malone, of Alan, 
a gospel preacher, a third generation of faithful Um, We can make it about the building we go to. We can make it about the clothes we wear. We can talk about the lives that we have led as as we talk to others. And in all of those things, we're referring to our flesh, what we have done as fleshly beings, or who we are as fleshly beings. We have to give up those things in order to attain Christ. It doesn't matter whose son I am. It doesn't matter how many generations of Christians have come before me. And when I bear those things, when I carry them with me, I am not doing what Paul has instructed here. I'm not giving up my rights. I'm not giving up who I am. I am maintaining the flesh instead of um, giving it up and being of the circumcision. Thanks, y'all, for all your comments.